morning, good morning. You're listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy, a slightly croaky Lucy this morning. Now, if you haven't joined us before, then welcome. You have joined a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their decision-making, their consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can then choose to apply the relevant aspect in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found more sustainable, loving and heartfelt ways to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. Now, today's show is about something that, you know, I I suspect people suffer in silence with. It's, um, I'll be amazed if it doesn't, Uh, affect every single person in our world. Uh, I would hazard a guess that we actually work overtime to ensure that we forget we feel this emotion. We may distract, numb, and most of the time look the other way, denying it was ever felt. Today is an up-close and personal show on shame. The emotion shame, or the feeling shame. Now, in my very um, limited awareness of the psychological aspects there are varying degrees of shame that I have come across just as I sat and thought about it I felt about I felt that it can look at you know we can look at global shame at national shame and then really bring it down to our personal lives and I'm going to be joined shortly by Jean Gamble who's going to explain to us those different different experiences um one of the one of the areas, global shame and the national shame, I guess, will be put into the package of vicarious shame. When you're ashamed about the way other people behave, you know there are the world's dysfunctional international relations, global tensions and war, our abuse of the planet we live on, our abuse of other countries where we look the other way and pretend that we don't see the genocides and the other atrocities enacted in the name of order or religion or something else that is marketed as for the good of someone or other. I read some appalling examples of shame in other cultures, such as, um, such as the shame some men feel at having a daughter instead of a son, to the point of abandoning the daughter, or knowing that the family would have a lesser standing in society. The other one that really shocked me was the shame, the word shame in this context, Shame was brought on a family when their daughter was raped, gang raped. Oh, yeah. Which means that the daughter then had to marry the rapist in order to lessen the shame on the family. I mean, please just don't get me going. And yeah, I feel vicarious trauma as a, as a result of listening to that. Goodness knows what trauma must have been felt. I, I just can't even imagine trying for the, the young woman in that story trying to compute quite what has happened. And then, of course, there's much closer to home. We've got the national shame. And this word is brought up quite a lot about the stolen generation and the invasion in the first place and the statistics on corruption. I don't, I don't actually feel that enough of the bankers who are part of this Royal Commission on Banking actually understand that they should feel ashamed of the way they behaved, that it was not acceptable. Our domestic violence rates, our parliamentary representatives' behaviour, which all has the hallmarks of a classic Shakespearean tragedy, but they seem completely impervious to that way of thinking. Yet 
what if all of those things can happen because we're not prepared to see where shame dominates our personal lives? What if it is our denial of where shame hides and dictates some of the choices um, that leaves us looking the other way when we should be perhaps standing up and calling out this corruption and abuse? So what is shame and how is it defined? Well, I, again, I'm going to give you the, the surface level and when we meet with Jean Gamble, we're going to dive right in. So uh, it, as a noun, it has two meanings. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. And an example of that was she was hot with shame. Did you notice that it was a female example they give? Don't get me started. Um, the second one was a regrettable or unfortunate situation or action. And, you know, what a shame Ellie won't be here. The third one is make someone feel ashamed. I tried to shame him into giving some, uh, giving some away. So that would be a verb. Shame is clearly an emotion that we can feel and others can manipulate us into feeling. Um, and it is uncomfortable feeling that, you know, I think we should avoid at all costs according to the life that I've uh, lived or observed or the self-discovery I've done. My guest today um, to discuss us and walk us through the, is the, uh, and she's going to walk us through and join us through the magic of the internet is Jean Gamble, uh, a regular guest on Stay in the Loop with Lucy. She works as a psychotherapist in private practice in Sydney and offers great insight and understanding into why people feel and find themselves doing things they do. In her inimitable style, Jean will no doubt cover this sensitive topic with grace and ease and hold our hands through it. Welcome, Jean. Hello, Lucy. Thank you once again for having me on the show. Yeah, it's quite a deep topic, this topic of shame. Oh, yeah. I mentioned to a few people that I was doing it this week and everyone just, you could you could see their body shift as we started talking about it in, in our, you know, just casual, this is the show that I'm doing kind of way. In a way, there was an exposing that they, again, physically were trying to hide. And I'd love to talk a little bit later in the show when we really tease out some of this initial shame stuff, how shame can sit in the body for many, many years, um, with, you know, with a very physical reaction or physiological reaction. Mm -hmm. But before we go there, I wonder if you could help us tease out the difference between shame and guilt, which I, I think can sometimes get interwoven and confused. Yes, look, I think that they are, it's okay to interweave and confuse them because they are similar. And generally in the context, people will understand what you mean when you're talking about I felt guilty or I felt ashamed. Um, from a kind of psychotherapeutic training point of view, um, what what I've been taught really, it's a bit knowledge-based, but it does ring true with me as well, is that shame is self-related. It, you, 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 it, you can be ashamed kind of um, within your own bubble. Whereas if you feel guilty, it's other-related. There's somebody else involved with the guilt. So... Um, you could say that a narcissistic person, a person who has a, a narcissistic disorder where they're very, very eye-centered, they wouldn't very often feel guilt because they're not very aware of the 
of the effect, their, their impact on another. But they would often feel shame because they've let themselves down or they've embarrassed themselves. So you could say, that it, it could be said like this, I feel guilty that I have hurt you and I'm ashamed that I would behave in such a way. Oh, that's so great. that's one way of encapsulating the difference. Yeah, and then other other ways of of explaining it is that um, uh, guilt is I did something bad. I feel guilty that I, I kicked the dog, or I, I forgot to feed the dog. Right, that's guilt. But shame is a feeling that I am bad. It's not something I did. It's I identify with badness. I'm either bad or I'm defective or um, inadequate in some way. So, so guilt is more associated with our behavior and shame is more associated with our core essence of how we identi- our identity. And the last way of differentiating is that some people have said shame is a violation of our cultural values, our societal values, what's expected of us in the community in which we live. And this varies, like you said in your intro, I'm ashamed that I've only given birth to girl children and I haven't been able to produce a son because in the culture I live in, boy children are valued more. Mm. Uh, And then, but often shame is a violation of the cultural values and guilt is your own values that you've violated. Like I feel guilty that that I did that, you know, it's a behavioral thing. It all sounds like it's trying to control, though. Both of those sound like they're trying to control you. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because when I was studying, we were taught that there's two types of shame. There's a toxic shame, which is that shamed to your core, that Mm. you believe that you're bad, and it's completely destructive and there's no good in it. Mm. And it is a control mechanism. And then there was what was called functional or healthy shame, which means that I know that I've behaved badly or I've been bad and therefore that keeps me on the straight and narrow as it were. Right. So it's a it's a it's a useful emotion. When you say it's controlling, yeah. It's a useful emotion in terms of I didn't like that feeling of shame, therefore I won't repeat that scenario. And so it's functional in that it keeps us on the straight and narrow. They made that differentiation when I was studying. Mm. But I have to say in my practice, I mainly come upon people who have this toxic, destructive shame where they identify with themselves as bad or putrid or rotten, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the one I'm I'm more familiar with seeing and, and experiencing as well because it's, it's like a worm that eats away at you. So mm. you, if you don't catch the early, early signs of it, then, um, yeah, it's like a... Hookworm, I guess. Yep. It eats you from the inside out. Yep. Yeah. Um, I also uh, felt with that in order to take yourself from toxic shame to functional shame, and we might, again, delve into this all the way through the show, then it sounds to me like you're prepared to take some responsibility and have some self-awareness, um, open self-awareness. So let's take, for example, a politician who does or, or, or someone who is in business and is blatantly uh, doing something that is corrupt, they would have to lie to themselves to not 
accept that what they're doing is a betrayal of the system that they have committed to working in and they would not feel shame until they might feel a bit guilty but they will push that down and therefore not feel ashamed until they actually were prepared to take responsibility or have I have I made that too two-dimensional look it is a little bit um black and white to say that you can move from toxic shame to functional shame it's not I wouldn't really see it as a movement so much as just these two phenomena occur mm. at different times. But when you say that that person would have to lie to themselves, it it isn't always a lying. It depends on your moral fiber. So, it, and your moral your moral fiber is um, adapted according to your your childhood, what you grow up in, right? Okay. So. For you and me to think of selling young people drugs and encouraging them to use drugs so that you can sell more um, would be a shameful act. But to the dealer who's engaging in that behavior, it's an easy way to earn a living. Mm. And it's, it's not, um, you don't need too many qualifications. There's a ready market there. There's ready available people who can be coerced into, oh, yeah, try this. It's really great at mm -hmm. this party. And then if you need any more, I can supply you. And if you haven't tried heroin yet, you don't know what you're missing out on, mate. Yeah. So that kind of behavior is not perceived as shameful by those people because their moral fiber is is constructed differently to yours and mine. Mm. If you grew up in a family where your dad was a, a drug dealer and he introduced you to drugs really early on and said, look, mate, this is the way you can get all your needs met. You just become a dealer, your supplies guaranteed, and there's always a ready market. Then it's good business, you know. And there's a justification for themselves in that it's supply and demand. If the supply, if the demand wasn't there, then they wouldn't need to supply it. And if they weren't yeah, going to supply it, someone else would. And even increasing supply by getting kids to try it and see if they like it. And yeah. um, it is perceived as something evil and shameful. It's perceived by them as a way to make a living. Yeah, as, you know, being and supplying so their marketing skills. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. And, and so... They don't, they don't engage with the morality of it through our lens mm. because they haven't been exposed to our lens. Mm. So I it's not that's... that they're lying. They're not lying to themselves. They've been conditioned to thinking it's, it's okay. That's something that we don't really allow very much for, do we, in our, in our society? You know, um, the, the reframing things or looking through someone else's lens. How did... How did their decision-making process look like that? Yes. It's important to bring understanding before judgment. Gina, what I would love to cover next, um, I see this a lot in women and um, some men, is around sexual shame, around feeling ashamed. It's almost like that feeling of being, um, you know, nun-like or monk-like, that you shouldn't actually have any of those feelings. But I'm also aware that um, uh, teenagers now see porn and have access to porn-like images through music videos, through the television, through movies, um, at a younger and younger age. And the average age for looking at porn was... Uh, was now hold on was a between 10 and 12 years old 
Um, I was going to say yeah. ten, but it, I mean, I, I, I'm not entirely convinced it was ten. But that's that's a shocking age to think. And that. that's an average, so then yeah. that means that children younger than that yeah. are looking at poor. They yeah. are, and that's that's what's so oh, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking because knowing that that changes the neural pathways. But perhaps that is what we could talk about next, and perhaps how that throws into adult life and stays with us. Yep. You prepared it's a very for that. good, it's a good topic, Lucy. All right. This morning we are talking to Jean Gamble. We're talking about shame, and um, it's really an up close and personal digging out what's what its causes are. What's the difference between shame and guilt? Looking at how it can take a hold on us, and how the um, seeds can be laid so early in life, so that the 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 uh, the lens that we look at life through is not necessarily the lens that another person looks at life through. So what we might feel ashamed or guilty about might be different to another person. But let's have a look equally at what happens when we do see things that we feel a response for in our body that doesn't feel right perhaps because we're not ready to feel it and that I think Jean and I was Jean and I were just starting to touch on before the um, before the break was about the early introduction of sexual relations to young children when their brains really are not able to process what they're seeing and their bodies aren't process, able to process what they're feeling. Jean, what do you, have you noticed this very much in the adults that you work with or the young people that you work with that they have this um, uh, dilemma over what they feel and what they see? Yes, I think that this um, early sexualization does give rise to a lot of shame in many people. And I have seen this in my consulting rooms. Um, you know, sexual abuse where the child is stimulated by the abuser, the perpetrator. And a, a lot of people come in to see me and they say they feel so ashamed because they enjoyed the abuse. Um, they didn't enjoy the way it's impacted their life and that it makes them lonely and unable to sustain relationships and they don't feel they belong and they may turn that into perfectionism or self-loathing um, but the fact that the body responded to what was being done to them in a way that was um, pleasurable gives rise to a great deal of shame and it's the same when people report having watched porn before they were of an age to deal with the excitation in the body and the brain what what do you make of what you're seeing when you watch porn um, it, it ends up rewiring your response network on a physiological level. Your nervous system gets rewired, plus your, uh, your, um, your, your thoughts of what's exciting, what's titivating, all gets confused. And I, I have had clients who've come in to see me with very shameful um, stories of how they're walking in the street and they see a woman and they start imagining a porn scene. And they don't like themselves doing this, but they, they don't understand where it's coming from. Or, um, or, or men who have to try and crack on to every girl they see 
as if it's a compulsion almost. They, they don't even like her. They don't even want to be with her. They just have this kind of response. And and often when I talk to people who are suffering from this, uh, they the shame can be ameliorated when you explain that you were exposed to sexual energy or excitation, arousal, way before your body was ready to deal with it. And this can be sometimes through sexual abuse, even sometimes mothers who have a poor relationship with their spouse will sometimes take comfort in their boy child. And they may even engage physically with him, with his genitals, squeezing him into their groin, holding him close to their breasts, and sexual energy will be elicited. And it's because that sexual energy isn't being placed uh, where it should be in the relationship, it gets kind of um, transposed onto the child. And it isn't always the child of the opposite sex. Sometimes it can be the child of the same sex. It's a kind of sexual comfort. And then that child learns that that's an arousal state that is it's in. It, it knows that inherently. And it messes with your configuration. It messes with your wiring. And it sometimes happens that you might then see a young child and feel aroused. And then you wonder, oh, my God, am I a pedophile? But it's actually because you've been incorrectly wired from an early age because of the need in the parent. And sometimes it's active sexual abuse. And other times it's just coming out of an overwhelming need by the one parent. Um, but what happens in the consulting room is... Once that person understands that what's happening in their body, the arousal, the response, is not something that they want, it's a result of a conditioning that happened to them as a child. Once they understand that, they get a lot more um, forgiving of themselves and the shame level drops. And I sometimes say to my clients, this is like Pavlov's dogs. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with Pavlov's dogs. There was this Russian researcher, um, I think he was Ivan Pavlov, I forget his first name, and he did this research where every time he fed the dogs, he rang a bell. And then he found that when he rang the bell, the dogs started salivating because they had learned to associate the bell with the food, yeah? And it's exactly the same. If your early childhood has sexual arousal, around being a child, watching sexual scenes, then when you go out in the world and you see women, it's Pavlov's dog syndrome. You immediately connect what you're seeing with that early state of arousal. Mm. And then all these visions, pictures come in of, oh, I'd like to have sex with her or I'd like to feel her mouth on my genitals or whatever. And the guilt and the shame that come up around this is absolutely destructive for the client, but he doesn't want it. He tries to push it away. He even stays inside so he doesn't get exposed to this kind of thing. But once you bring understanding, you can then get awareness and you can get some forgiveness around, oh, this is not what I want. It's what happens to me as a result of that early um, exposure and early stimulation. Um, am I raving, Lucy? No. Or is it making sense? No, it's making a lot of sense. And I, and this is where, you know, these are subjects that we don't talk about and so we don't offer 
each other the opportunity to have an understanding about why those thoughts and how those thoughts can get in um, and then how they can multiply. Uh, some people act on them, some people don't, and thankfully the majority don't. Um, but it, it's it's just, I think, as you say, the shame that's felt that the thought is even there, that without understanding how it got there, the shame builds to a point where it becomes an issue when actually it was never your issue in the first place. That's true. That's it exactly. It was put in you, you could say, mm. that, you know, because of the abuse or the or the exposure to some some children watch their parents making love and i know that there are families that think that this is fine but but for the small baby it's almost or an infant or say a 5 year old or below and 6 year old it's almost too much for them to deal with watching the 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 climax and the activity and and some parents will say oh no it's good for them they learn that a loving relationship is possible and all that but it's almost like it's it's beyond the scope of that child to deal with what it's seeing mm. and then you end up with a sort of wiring going a bit wonky not always in some cases let's say you have a, a small a boy of 10 or 8 or 7 or 6 or something who's exposed to pornography and he sees women in that light then his whole vision of women is coloured as being um, porn queens or whatever, sexual objects. If he's got a mother then who is separate from that, you know, she goes to work, she loves him, she's functional, she offers him boundaries, she offers him love, then he has another picture of, oh, okay, so the women that I'm watching on the TV are that and the mummy I have at home is that. So that's giving him already a second viewpoint. Yeah. But if you get a case where the child is exposed to porn and he's got a mother who's needy, he's kind of merging all his women role models into one bundle. Yes. And that doesn't give him very much um, other when he's out in the world. Mm. And quite often in these families that are, um, are uh, functioning on sort of a low functional, they haven't got a lot of education, they haven't got a lot of exposure to what's right and wrong. They are exposed to porn and they have needy mums. Mm. So you often, you often, or abuse, and you often get kind of multi-layered trauma going on. Yeah. A lot of that toxic shame that we talked about in the beginning is a result of multi-layered childhood trauma. Right. When you, it's, when you have that chronic, low self-esteem and you don't feel, you feel either defective or bad. It's because something's gone on in your childhood that is not optimal to flourishing. And if I can rave on, I'll say that this happens, what I see in my room quite often is if in the family, the parents will perceive one child as struggling or not coping as well as the other child. And when the, when the children are young, at two, three years old, it begins to see, oh, wow, this child is not doing as well as the other one. The younger one's really overtaking the older one. He's slower to learn. His reflexes are slower. His development isn't as sharp. And then they don't want that younger child to overshadow, to sort of um, outshine the younger child, to outshine the older child or the girl or the boy or any two kids really or even three. So the parents almost unconsciously begin to shut down that shiny child in the hopes of protecting the less shiny child. Mm. 
And that often gives result of toxic shame coming in to the shiny child when they become an adult and they have this inherent sense of self-loathing or shame. And it's difficult to unpack this because nothing really went on, you know. There wasn't abuse. There wasn't anything. But it was always a bit like, oh, um, you know, you don't pour the tea, Meryl. Let Susan pour the tea, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's sort of, oh, why why can't I pour the tea? And it's because the, the parent kind of wants Susan to have a chance to pour the tea. Yeah. Because you're already there realizing the tea needs to be poured and you're on it kind of thing because yeah. you're the shiny. And then you end up being constantly uh, um, shut down or, 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 or your, your impulses are stifled because the parent in their effort to do good in inverted commas is trying to protect the less shiny child. And there isn't any such thing as shiny and less shiny. It's just the kid developing at their own pace mm. that the parent gets panicky. And so toxic shame often arises where you've been shut down Surely, with abuse and with a, with um, uh, you know being told you're useless and obvious things, this one that I'm alluding to with the shiny and the not so shiny is often not obvious, hmm. but it can give rise to an enormous amount of I'm not okay. I don't know why, but I just know I'm not okay, and I shouldn't and, stand out. Yep, and the, it's actually you're too okay, my darling. Yeah. The reason why this happened to you is because you were so very quick on the uptake, sharp and all that. But your parents didn't want you to outshine your siblings or it sometimes happens with a girl child when the parents feel the boy child should be leading. Yes. In some cultures. Yeah. The boy needs to be ahead of the game, you know? I can so see this um, in, in a lot of the parent work that I do and the student work that I do. I can really see a lot I could just picture the students where you go, that's why you don't want to shine because you've been told all your life, oh no. And and the majority of them have got siblings who were challenged or have autism or have ADHD. And so they're trying to sort of build their confidence of their normalcy. Um, at, but at the same time, putting down the other siblings so that then everyone has a problem as opposed to just one person needing a little bit more, a different approach. That's it. And it's sort of like if we've all got it, then it's not so bad, you yeah. know, or it's not shameful kind of thing. But getting back to that topic of sex, I think that, you know, again, I don't know the, the, um, the optimal answer because if you, if, you, if you grow up in the 80s and sex is free and it's just like having pizza or Chinese, you have sex and it's neither, it's not here or there and it's nothing to be ashamed of, then you get this very um, uh, sort of um, licentious behavior and it's, it's considered normal and there's nothing shameful about it. It's, there's no sluts around. It's just that everyone's free to choose. But it almost becomes then a social pressure to be sexual because that's the current zeitgeist. Yes. And then if you don't want to do that, you feel shamed because you're not like everybody else. Absolutely. <laughs> God, so can we put of, drinking you, alcohol in this one as well? That like you feel ashamed yeah, that you're not interested in smoking or drinking or taking drugs? Yes, it's the same. Wow, yeah. I haven't lost my virginity yet and I'm in year seven. Yeah. Eek, I better get rid of it, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and then this is like how the societal pressures almost govern our behavior. And we feel shame because we're not conforming with everybody else. And if a child has a secure base and they've been met by their family, they can sometimes withstand this, you know. Mm. But if the child has been a little bit 
not optimally raised and the mum and dad are too busy and they haven't been met, they look to their peer group for their sense of belonging. Yeah. And then that idea that I'm different or I, I need to be the same in order to survive can give rise to almost reverse shame where I'm ashamed because I'm behaving well and everybody else is behaving badly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or you're getting on with I... your parents when no one else is getting on with their parents. Yeah, I better stage a fight so I look like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, that, that rings too many bells. Um, the research that I've been doing on, um, I've been looking at body image and body um, uh, and eating disordered eating and it, it, they always talk about the the triangle of support as a young person grows up so you've got the parents the peers and the media and the influence of all three and uh, what you've just described there is how you can have you know one of them can can bring balance but actually if the other two are showing them a picture of what is their normal, which might be the sexual behaviour or the smoking or the drinking or, you know, the, the growing up very early. The the third one is likely to be imposed on. So for the peers, the peers can either mitigate what's going on in the media and the family um, or the parents can mitigate what's going on with the peers and the media. But it, very often... It's uh, the media is the one that is the is more likely to be pulling you ahead of where you want to go and confirming either what you're picking up from your peers or your parents. Is that possible? Yeah, that's true. And the media has often resulted to marketing, you know. And the yeah. more the more market there is available for our products, even if it's pornography or alcohol or cigarettes, then the better we do as a company. Mm. So it's corrupt, but it's also it's also big business, you know. Uh, we've got a song now. It's by Rachel Kane called Point of Light. It's a song that you wanted to play in because the words are really very beautiful. I'm just going to read you, if I can, without losing my mic, the first, um, the first verse. Have you ever felt life's dragging you down? You're, you're like a mouse on a wheel going round and round. Have you ever felt life's left you flat? You're giving all that you've got and there's no coming back. The more you let in, you hide away and all of the beauty of life turns to grey. But there's one thing that's true that lives inside your heart. It is your home. There's a spark inside your heart that burns through, that burns through all the pain. It brings you back to life. It lights your every way. You're connected to the stars. You're connected to the trees. You're an equal point of light. You are a light. You are an equal point of light. You are a sunshine. You are an equal point of light. You are a sunshine. Just before you play that song, mm. I just want to, um, if it's okay, I just want to say a bit about why I suggested that song. Yeah. Okay. Because often in my room, when I get somebody who comes in who's been infected with this toxic shame, where they just feel, and if any listeners are listening to this and it resonates with you, um, don't feel that you're the only person who feels this because I see it a lot. It's that you've you've grown up in a in a family that all you've had past lives, if we're going there, where you've you've believed that you are bad, you've believed that you're inadequate, you're defective, and that's your core belief that there's something wrong with you. You're not okay. And as I've said, it could be the shiny child syndrome, it could be abuse, it could be early early exposure to stuff that you're not like violence. Children don't know what to do with violence. So if there is domestic violence or even abuse of shouting and banging doors and slamming lids and pots, the child it gets discombobulated because they're not yet wired to deal with 
that kind of thing. Or if they see violence on a screen before they know what how to process it in their own neural and physiological and psychological capacities. Um, anyway, you've got this toxic shame and you think it's who you are. This is what I have to say and I would like to remind everybody who's listening. And the we have to look at the universe and we see the actual marvel that is the universe. So I don't know, I'm staying at the moment with some friends, that's why I'm on the internet, and they have in their garden these yellow flowers and they follow the sun. So in the morning, the flowers look to the east and they all open. And then at midday, the flowers are looking upright. And in the sunset, the flowers are all looking over towards the west. And then as the sun sets, the flowers close. They don't, I'm sure you've all got flowers like this in your garden, but they track the sun. And it just reminds me of how, however this universe was constructed, and I don't, depends on your own belief system, but it is amazing. And there are no faults in the universe. You know, even the dung beetle is in the forest, they're rolling up all the crap and dealing with it, laying its eggs in that. And so everything is accounted for. And you've got the oceans and the, and the, the, the stars, the cosmos, you've got the planet Earth. And you look at it and it all works exceedingly well. I mean, I know lions kill zebra and they eat their babies, but they have to feed the lion cubs. They don't usually kill 10 zebra and leave nine of them rotting on the savannah. They just kill the one they need to munch on, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of works. And where it goes wrong is when man intervenes in their control and their omnipotence. But without that, you get the whole beauty of the universe and the order and the way that it works. And there's not much you can point a finger at there that says, oh, it's wrong. So when you ask yourself, what is the universe made of? It's made of carbon atoms, molecules, and energy. And then you ask yourself, okay, I am part of this universe. I am standing on the planet Earth. If you envision the Earth, I don't know if any of your listeners ever read that book, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And um, he always pictured him standing on the Earth with his feet like a little pumpkin standing on the globe of the Earth. But if you imagine that you are on this planet, you are also made of carbon matter, molecules, energy. You are same, same as the universe, same as the stars. You're made of the same. You are not a design fault. You know, there are no design faults. The only design fault is in the thinking. And it's Shakespeare said this when he said, you know, there's nothing in this world that thinking doesn't make it so. I forget the exact quote, but we think our way into reality. But if if you imagine that the world is made of carbon molecules, matter, energy, breath, and you are made of the same, then you cannot judge yourself to be defective, bad, wrong. Hmm. It's just not feasible because of what you're made of. Your particles are made of the same as the rest of our divine universe. So it's your thinking that is making you feel bad and defective and wrong. It's not who you are. It's what happened to you that is governing this thought pattern. And that's where I wanted to really come in with that story and then play the song because they kind of link. Have you ever felt life's dragging you down? You're like a mouse on a wheel going round and round. Have you ever felt life's left you flat? You 
given all that you've got, there's no coming back. I'm joined online by Jean Gamble, who is uh, works as a psychotherapist in um, Sydney, um, who's been helping me tease out the difference between guilt and shame, um, about how they can be intertwined, but and how um, shame can dominate so much of our lives. We've talked about toxic shame, about functional shame, about vicarious shame. We also touched on the fact that um, shame can live in our bodies and where we can feel the shame as a child and not necessarily have the neural processes to understand what's going on, it can then actually affect us when we're an adult. And I see this an awful lot in body image issues and self-esteem issues and can physically change the shape of our bodies and and lead to disordered eating because we have a warped perception of what we feel we look like compared to what we actually look like. Jean, I would love to um, to tease that out a little bit more where we feel ashamed of different parts of our body or our body size. This is this is um, largely, uh, I think, a um, again, it's a it's a configuration in the body from childhood, and sometimes when we don't feel adequate or we feel bad, we can we can locate that badness in one part of our body as a form of defense. So rather than feeling awful, I just think, oh, my thighs are too fat, and it's a kind of then I can get around, I can do life without feeling as bad as I'm completely doomed and lost. And I, I managed to kind of squeeze all of that negative feeling into a particular body part. And that allows me to function, even though I've then got this complex about a certain body part or my shape or my size. Like I'm fat, but at least I speak up for myself. Whereas if you allow the whole negative, shameful, I'm bad, experience, it can infiltrate your whole beingness. So sometimes I think that the the body image is a, is a defense almost of making one part of me bad so the rest of me can can get away, can, can live normally. And I think that the media, again, are very um, culpable. pivotal. Yeah. Pivotal, culpable in what they portray as ideal body. If you think of the days of Botticelli, a full round figure was considered to be absolutely voluptuous and gorgeous. Yeah. And a skinny tanned blonde girl um, would be not at all worth painting, you know. Yeah, yeah. They'd, want to, they'd, say, they'd say, give her a meal for God's sake. Yes. Whereas our cultural zeitgeist now is that you're incredibly attractive if you've got fake tan and, and very little body meat. Mm. Um, so it's... it's um, Again, it's what the culture influences us to feel about ourselves versus what's true. Am I healthy? Yes. Does my body serve me well? Yes. Then I respect and love it. But if it doesn't look like the pictures portrayed in the media, then I will find fault with it. And if I'm not feeling good about myself anyway and I can encapsulate all of that bad feeling into one body part or or my body rather than who I am, then that's a kind of defense against feeling that awful. I'm only, I'm only awful now in, 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 
in my body and how my body looks. Do you know what I mean when I say a defense? Yes, totally. And it, and it, I I felt it in my body where you feel like you, you know you're carrying armor that is illogical to be carrying, but you're but you're carrying it as a as a protection almost. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and sometimes and it, after long after the time has come that you needed it it's just there and you forget why it's there and it just you just build yeah and I think I've in my work as a body oriented psychotherapist so I do somatic psychotherapy so the body is very much a part of my work I see clients shape change and I also see people's shape change when they adopt a um, a belief that they are more than just a human being, like the point of light song, mm. to say that I'm part of the universe, therefore I have a role to play, I'm here for a reason, I'm, I've got a spiritual path now, I'm, 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 I'm not just a human being doing human things, I'm more than that. Then their bodies can also begin to change shape and some of the defense and the protection against not being okay begins to drop away the body actually changes shape. Yeah. You you lose your bulk, shoulders become more defined because you haven't got that very protected, bulked out shape. Yeah. So what when we think we're not okay, the body then goes into protection. And that's part of the the, the body image thing is that you no matter how you can live on one lettuce leaf a week and your shape doesn't change because your mind is telling you you need the protection from being exposed, being embarrassed, being hurt, being not good enough. Mm. The the way to build, because in essence, we've you you can't I, we can't do a show on shame and say that that's normal, because that that just keeps us kept in a in a recidivistic loop of patterns of behaviour that are. Um, harming to our physical body, to our community, to environment. And that's how we end up with, you know, um, leaders behaving the way they do or looking the other way when appalling things happen around the world. So we've got to look at it very personally, haven't we, Jean, in order to have a ripple effect. And it might take years, it might take tens of years or hundreds of years, but to actually be the change we want to see in the world, it starts with us saying, all right, well, where is this hiding in my life and does it dictate part of me? And is it, have I got things that I'm holding on to that just are not me? I agree, Lucy. You know, we can't we can't influence the decisions Donald Trump is going to make on racism or, 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 or our own government for that matter. So, you know, I think you're completely right. I like to think of this as a kind of big, bowl in the sky and I call it the thought bowl and it's sort of like two tanks and the more we do individual things even though we think it's a small thing that I'm dealing with my shame it fills up the healthy tank and then that influences the rest of the world it's like the rain comes out of that bowl and um, precipitates over the earth and the more good people are looking at what's they're turning the rocks over in their life and examining their own shameful feelings or their own sense of inadequacy and where does that come from and why am I living with this? The more personal work we each do individually, it has a kind of collective effect on the balance that is in the cosmos. 
Mm. And I don't know if that's true, but it's something that I like to feel. It's a bit like plastic recycling. You know, when you go and stay in a hotel in the city and you see how much junk gets put in their bin at the end of each day. And then you think, oh, well, here I am dutifully taking my empty bags to Coles and putting them in the recycling. Is it going to make any difference? But it is because every little helps when we've got one universe we can only contribute our bit to the health of that that universe. So yes, it does make a difference. And I love the idea that um, you you have people who come in and they physically change, and the the ability to stand up and have your shoulders down and your chest um, open that that physiological difference means that you share a different reflection to other people in the streets and people notice when someone is at ease in their body and if we can have more people at ease in who they are and in their bodies and in their expression and just living I would say perhaps transparently introduce that word so that the the shame isn't there because when you're ashamed you, you're, you're less likely to be willing to be transparent in your life I just really feel that that will offer others a reflection that, oh, I would, I, I would like to walk like that or feel like that. And it might even start the conversation about, you know, how, how are you going? How, how do you feel that at ease in your body? I don't know. We might just be able to offer reflections to each other that say, we don't have to be this way. We don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed or have low self-esteem or or be beholden to an outside dictum of what we should look, sound and hear, feel like. I agree. I totally agree that each each person dealing with their own issues, turning, lifting the rocks, examining what's under them, dealing with it. It's And as that, you know, as I've said, so often when we bother to do the examination, we find out the understanding is, oh, it's not that I'm bad. It's just that the stuff happened to me which colored my thinking. Mm. Yeah. And then that reflection is offered to other people. I remember in one of my trainings, this very wonderful teacher, and I said to her, oh, well, what happens when you let go of all your contraction and all your feelings of self-worth, lack of self-worth? What happens when you just walk around like that? She said, oh, Jean, when you walk around like that, everybody will want to come up and lick you and love you. <laughs> uh-huh. okay. It's sort of like it's very attractive when you've dealt yeah. with your stuff, yeah. And uh, and and you're not you're not walking around with those um, limiting beliefs about yourself, which are not true. Yeah, I, I would like to put something else in the pot as an alternate reality. What if when you ever, you, rather than everyone come up and lick you, everyone goes, don't do that. You're making me aware, you know, they, it's that mother, that parent thing where you try and dull that person down because they're making everybody else look more aware or, you know, they're, they're, it's unfair to someone else who isn't doing well. Yes. So sometimes when you get rid of all your contraction and your sense of self-worth is, expands and you love yourself more, you will attract some attacks from people who uh, you're reflecting to them that they're not living this way and they don't like that. So the energy coming through them might try and pull you down mm. because they are exposed in their own lovelessness and they're still dealing with their shame. They haven't, they haven't 
transmuted it yet into other energy, other feelings of, oh, that's not who I am. Mm. It's what happened to me. Mm. So I can hold my head high and lift my sternum and bring my chin down and walk and move in a way that says I am not that that was put upon me as a child. And, you know, I'm a mom and I've had two daughters and I've made mistakes. So it's not that we want the worst for our kids. It's just that we don't meet them in optimal flourishing. Yeah, It's like what's yeah. the very best I can do to make this child feel shameless, worthy, and walk tall in their life. And we don't always think of that. Sometimes we think like, I wish they'd stay asleep so I could get the nappies on the line. Yes. Well, that's showing yeah. my age, isn't it? No one hangs nappies on the line anymore. <laughs> we just just use huggies. No, but I mean, um, it is. It's it, it, You're not always, you know, to have it for a front of mind that you want this child fully loving themselves, worshipping who they are. One of my teachers once said, it's better to pull the children off the roof with a hook than scrape them up off the floor with an egg flip. Mm. So the more we can boost their self-esteem, the more they feel good about themselves, the less they have to walk that shame spiral as an adult. Mm. Mm. I, I think, I, you know, the temptation is as a parent, I mean, I've been sitting here going, oh, I don't think I did that too well. And oh, maybe I contributed to that. And next one said, we do have that ability to feel ashamed of the way we have done things. But as you say, it's so important to be gentle, to look through the lens of why. I mean, I would look back and I look through the lens that I lived then and I go, oh, okay that makes sense. I understand that. Gosh, you know, I, I, I can understand why I behaved that way or why I parented that way. Now I have a different feeling in my body. I've looked under a whole load of rocks. I mean, gosh, you know, Brighton Beach is looking pretty good right now. And um, I, I look through different lenses. Therefore, I wouldn't parent in the same way today as I did then. And yet, I'm still learning things and I'm still going to, you know, stumble and fall um, and and get things right and get things wrong. But if we have the intention of giving our, our, our the people around us, not just our own children, but the people around us and the children around us, the um, grace of 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 seeing them as equal points of light and the the ability to give them as much fertile ground to grow themselves from as possible that's that's all we can do isn't it because then of course they have their own choices to make and their own path to walk yep exactly and it's really taking the judgment out of it because a lot of that toxic shame we if we're suffering from that we project that people don't want to be near us. They they are well, they are tainted by the shame that we walk and we live in. And so if we can remove the judgment and just open our hearts to them and just say that they haven't woken up yet to the fact that they are also gorgeous, yummy people. Mm. You know, this this toxic shame thing, it 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 gives rise to that feeling of not belonging. I can't be part of that group at school. I can't be part of that mother's group. I can't be part of that gang at work who go to lunch together. I have to be on the outside because I'm I'm different. And it also blocks intimacy. People who have deep shame, that toxic shame, they suffer from loneliness because they, they can't actually challenge the thought that anyone would want to be with them. 
so they they live in that they even sabotage their own relationships mm. in order to prove that they are so shame, shamed so revolting that no one would want to be with them and it also can give rise to perfectionism it's like i so don't want to feel this shame that i'll make sure that everything i do is faultless yes and then you live this incredible tension of the perfectionist because if you make one little mistake if your foot slips off the white line one centimeter then you're doused in your own shame mm. nobody it's, else yeah. has noticed yeah yeah and that's such a tension to live with that level of perfectionism because you don't want the shame. It's like a kind of medication. It's a drug. Being perfect becomes the way you avoid the feelings of shame. Yeah. Well, look, I did everything right, so I can't be shamed. And it's just a defense again. It's much better to work with the shame, share it. Now, I'll just recap a little bit on what, what would be a treatment here, is to get support and share the shame where it won't be judged. You know, I don't get many people coming into my room saying, you know, Jean, I suffer with shame. Mm. They mainly say, I have no confidence. But then when we start digging around, we find that they have been deeply shamed as children. Mm. And that's why they don't have the confidence. So you get the support to share the shame. I mean, if it's something like you get aroused when you see children or you you get aroused when you see women, then you know, oh, yeah, that's a horrible feeling in my body. That is a more conscious shamefulness that they'll come in with. Yeah. But often it just manifests as a lack of self-worth yeah. or poor relationships. I'm not able to sustain a relationship or I keep sabotaging the one I'm in, you know. So we should get support and you share the shame where it won't be judged. Yeah. Addicts, um, addicts, and, you know, addiction can be workaholism, can be alcoholism, can be love addiction, not only drugs. Uh, it can be prescription, non-prescription. It can be exerciseaholism. There's many forms of addiction. And the addict is often shamed because they are uncontrolling of their addiction. They feel they're not in a position to take responsibility and that shames them. They don't like the way they are being. And they are ashamed of who they are. Mm. And so it's it's really important to understand that the, the, the medication, the addiction, is because you don't want to feel. And often what you don't want to feel is the deep level of shame that's there. But by engaging in the addiction, you're just increasing the shame. So it's really helpful to get support and share what you're ashamed of where it won't be judged. Okay. So it's sometimes a good friend or someone who's been through it or a professional who's usually us people who are doing this kind of work. We've done our own journey. So I was an addict before and I know what it's like to wake up every morning with a shame and promising myself that I won't repeat and then bloody hell repeating yeah. and hating myself for it, you know, hardly lifting my head with the shame of the way I am. And then once you've got yourself someone to support you with, then you unpack where it comes from. Bring the understanding. You know, vulnerability in our current society, we don't encourage vulnerability and sensitivity. So quite often we end up shamed because we've, we were in tears or we felt vulnerable. And really that should be applauded in our society, not something to be ashamed of. Um, and then when you learn to unpack it, you learn to track the physical response. 
So you notice when you're feeling the shameful feelings. What do they look like in my body? My shoulders curl in, my chest contracts, my stomach goes into into a contraction. And once you begin to be aware of what your body's doing, you can start to challenge it. I'm going to lift my chest. I'm going to let go of the contraction in my gut, recognizing this is not who I am. It's what happened to me. There are no design faults in the universe. And then you begin to practice moving in a way that doesn't leave any space for the shame in the body. Your body posture, the way you hold yourself, you start to move and and configure yourself in a way that says, no, I'm not going to let those habitual contractions govern me. I'm going to walk in the light that I am. Uh, Even try both postures. So you go into the shame and feel how it feels in your body and then stand in the, no, I'm not that. I'm equal to the rest of the universe and feel how that feels in your body and then walk forward in the latter. You lift your sternum. The listeners at home can try this. Right now, as you're listening to this, just gently, one centimeter, one millimeter, lift your breastbone. Feel that expansion in the heart. And then gently pull your chin in a little bit and feel the expanse in your occiput, the back of the brain. So now you've got an open heart and an extended spinal column. And it's very hard to adopt a shameful posture when your sternum is up and lifted and your chin is in. It makes you feel, oh, that's right, I'm part of the cosmos. I'm not a design fault. Stunning. Stunning. Well, what a way to end the show is, is knowing that we are part of the cosmos and we're not a design fault. Jean, I love it. And as you say, we can't do much about the shame of the politicians and the shame of the big food corruption, pharmaceutical food corruption. We can't do a lot about other people's shame. That's for them to work on. But we can make our contribution to that big bowl in the sky that says there's less shame now because I'm dealing with mine. Mm. Mm. I love it. And that that is our own bit. That's that responsibility word again, isn't it? It comes back. Yeah, surely that's all we can do. Take responsibility for ourselves and our own lives and what we put out there yeah. and what we allow in the world around us um, by reflection. By reflection, exactly. Not even saying too much, just being it and offering others that that opportunity mm. and letting go of judgment. Yeah. If you have, you know, if you if you don't feel shame, but you see someone else, because it's it's not all that nice to be around people who are feeling deep shame. You know, it's kind of easy to walk around them rather than past them. Yeah, and it's almost better to drop that judgment and open your heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jean, thank you so much. Um, I think this will be an episode to listen back to again and again and again because I think there are so many layers in it that are um, foundational for us as human beings um, to remind ourselves that we are so much more than what we have been living um, and that our behaviours can sometimes get a little dysfunctional when we forget the light that we come from, which that song so beautifully held us with. Yep. It's true. So, Jean, till till next time. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Lucy, for having me on the show. It's a huge topic to cover in one in an hour or two, but it was an interesting um, entry into the topic. Yeah, and you never know. We may have so many questions from this one that we come back and we, we cover it again. Who knows? Yep. Thank you again for having me here. Pleasure. That was a big morning. Uh, I don't think I've ever tried to cover as large a topic as that. And it was quite clear that the more we unraveled, the more there was to talk about and the more deep-seated some of the patterns of behaviour can be. But if we really come back to the fact that we, we are caught in this loop because of the judgement of, well, I don't know, what we think we should be or who we should be, and that if we just took a step back and came back to the fact that we are our reflection is from the universe that we are made of that universe part and part of it and that we are perfectly imperfect trying to work out how to live as a reflection of that here just listen back again take some time to just really um process I guess, what this show might bring up for you. Find someone to support you. Find someone to talk um, with you about it. Someone who perhaps has, has gone through this process. So I would suggest a professional or if it's a friend, be supportive of, of each other and what it comes up so that you can unpack it in a place that um, you, allows you to feel vulnerable and sensitive without any judgment. And then you can learn to track those physical responses that we so often talk about in this in this show that say, hey, look, there's something up here. Next week's show, um, I won't, I'm not going to be in next week, but there'll be a podcast online just in case you enjoy your, your weekly uh, Stay in the Loop with Lucy Fix. And then I'm back on the air on the 28th of October. So you can tune in live at 8.30 or listen late in the day via the Stay in the Loop with podcast wherever you get them. Um, I don't forget, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher and tune in. That's where I am at the moment. Always pertinent to remind ourselves that whatever has always happening in our lives, we are and always will be us constantly learning but underneath that in our essence amazing you're going to hear it every time i do my show the key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with our body that holds that essence so that we can recognize when our body is trying to tell us something's not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service remember the body is the marker of all truth it is going to let you know by the little signs and if we can pay attention to the little signs we have every opportunity to actually make sure that they don't uh, define us look for support in the community and don't forget we, we can't wait for life to come to us as you can see if we wait we get the presidents that we get we get the leaders that we get we get the behavior in all of these different areas that make us so ashamed of other people's behavior we need to actually say i'm not going to wait for you to to live the the way that the live the way of love that i feel should be lived on this plane of life on this earth i'm going to walk it and be an example to the next generation of what it is to care deeply for each other as human beings and our planet and the, the everything that occupies our earth. Till next week's show, be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.